Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine, chiropractor, and functional nutrition practitioner, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. I'm excited about today's podcast, but before we jump in, I wanted to remind you to download this month's special gift at drjockersgift.com. From keto meal plans, smoothie recipes, to fasting quick start guides, we have a new complimentary gift every single month. To get your gift, simply visit drjockersgift.com. That's D-R-J-O-C-K-E-R-S-G-I-F-T.com. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. I'm excited to announce that we just launched my new book, The Fasting Transformation, a functional guide to burn fat, heal your body, and transform your life with intermittent and extended fasting. If you've been listening to this podcast for any period of time, you know that I'm a huge advocate of fasting. And in this book, I take you on a journey to help you understand how fasting helps balance your blood sugar and improve your insulin sensitivity, how it shuts down inflammation in the body, how it optimizes your hormones, turns on fat burning, and activates stem cells for deep cellular healing. Guys, I go through how fasting, I go through all the best science and research on intermittent and extended fasting and how to utilize it to help prevent or even heal from cancer, autoimmune conditions, digestive disorders, and neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Guys, the book goes over all the various research and practical applications for daily intermittent fasting, partial fasting, and extended fasting. This book is designed to help inspire and empower you to embrace a fasting lifestyle while also enjoying tasty and healthy foods at the right time to improve your metabolic flexibility and energy efficiency so you can burn fat for fuel and have all day energy. You are going to love this book. So check it out. You can get it on amazon.com. We also have a website, drjockers.net forward slash fasting transformation. That's drjockers.net forward slash fasting transformation. You can learn more about it. And of course, you can pick the book up on Amazon. You're going to love it. Thanks so much, guys. This podcast is an audio recording of one of my most popular YouTube videos on gut inflammation. This is a huge deal. So many people are dealing with chronic gut inflammation and it's leading to a lot of different problems. So I did a deep dive in this podcast all about gut inflammation, the root causes of it, testing strategies to see if you do have gut inflammation, and all the best support strategies. You guys are going to learn really a triage of nutrition strategies and how to know what the right diet is going to be for you. We also talk about how to be able to self-assess for your stomach acid levels, your bile flow, how well your bile is flowing to break down emulsify fats, and how well your pancreatic enzymes are uh, being created and released in your body. So you're going to learn self-hacking strategies for those, and you're going to learn the best support strategies. So you guys are going to love this podcast. This is, this is life-saving information. You're going to love it. Please share it with somebody that you know and that you care about. And if you have not left us a review, now is the time to do that. Go to your Apple iTunes player, 
leave us a five-star review. When you do that, it helps us reach more people and impact more lives. Thanks so much for doing that. And thank you for being a part of our community. Let's go into the show now. Well, hey, this is Dr. Jockers. And today we're talking about gut inflammation, the causes, testing, and support strategies. So I'm going to actually talk about the root causes of inflammation in your gut. We're going to discuss different testing strategies, things that you could do at home to test different regions of your gut to see how they're functioning. And we're going to talk about all the best natural support strategies to follow. And so just a reminder, this video is not meant to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. And it's for informational purposes only. The video is not a treatment protocol and does not replace a consultation with a healthcare practitioner. You are fully responsible for what you do or don't do with the information in this presentation. So with that said, we know that inflammation affects every region of the body and inflammation is really our immune system's response to trying to prevent against some sort of infection from going uh, septic and getting into our lungs and causing pneumonia into our brain and causing uh, some sort of encephalitis or meningitis in our nervous system and killing us quickly. But unfortunately, inflammation over time, even though it's preventing the infection from killing us quickly, will actually chew up our system and kill us slowly unless it's kept under control. And so many people have gut inflammation and leaky gut is such a big deal. And so here are some of the major signs and symptoms of gut inflammation, cramps, diarrhea, uh, asthma or other breathing difficulties, problems with your immune system, nutritional or vitamin deficiencies, things like anemia, for example, uh, B12 deficiencies, zinc deficiencies, vitamin D even can be related to gut, uh, gut inflammation, uh, mood disorders, depression, anxiety. There's a gut brain axis that plays a big role, meaning that your brain, what's happening in your brain, a lot of that has to do with what's happening in your gut. And so if there's inflammation in your gut, you can have inflammation in your brain, which can affect your mood, can affect your memory, your cognitive function, your energy levels, uh, your skin. There's a gut-skin connection as well. So psoriasis, skin rashes, eczema, different issues like that, all related to gut problems, allergies, another big issue, acid reflux, food allergies, intolerances, or sensitivities, all related to issues going on with the gut. And so when we look at the gut lining, it is only one cell wall thick, and there are little tight junctions that are holding that together, kind of like a cheesecloth is held together. So there's little holes, and that's where the nutrients are able to pass through, get into the bloodstream, where they're be able to be taken to cells and uh, be utilized for energy. And that is a great and a beautiful thing. However, when the gut lining when the actual uh, tight junctions get broken, now undigested food particles, different uh, pathogens, bacteria, yeast, immune cells, different things like that will seep into the bloodstream and it will trigger inflammation. When the body senses that there's a high level of pathogens or unrecognized proteins, because maybe they're, they're food proteins, but they're undigested. So when it notices that, it drives up inflammation. It feels at, at risk and at, at there's a threat to survival. There's a threat for septic, for a septic response, a, a systemic infection. So it drives up inflammation to protect the body. And this is how it affects the skin, the brain, all the major regions of the body, increases your risk of autoimmune disorders, 
when there's damage to the gut linings. We really have to take good care of the gut. Now, root causes of gut inflammation, inflammatory diet, and I, you probably already knew that, but uh, you know, a diet that's full of processed foods, foods that promote inflammation, obviously going to affect the gut. Food sensitivities. So you may eat a healthy diet, but you may have a sensitivity to, let's say, dairy, even really good dairy or eggs or something like that. That can drive up inflammation in the gut. Nightshade vegetables, tomatoes, bell peppers, you know, that can also cause issues with the gut. So not everybody has a sensitivity to eggs. Not everybody has a sensitivity to nightshade vegetables. For some people, those foods can be very healthy and healing for them. But for many people, they can be a problem. And that's what we're talking about here. So food sensitivities, low stomach acid levels. So if you're not producing enough stomach acid, you're not going to be able to break down and digest your food well. You're not going to be able to sterilize your food well. Um, that's going to really set you up for a lot of problems with gut inflammation. Some sort of gut infections. This could be a parasite, could be uh, candida or yeast overgrowth, could be an H. pylori overgrowth, could be you know just uh, all kinds of stuff, giardia, right? Things like that, that we get from water or contaminated food that can drive up inflammation in the gut. Certain medications, for example, like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, things like aspirin will drive up inflammation in the gut. So they can be real problematic. Small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or this condition of SIBO where bacteria have translocated from the large intestine up into the small intestine. They ferment food too quickly. They cause malabsorption issues, uh, inflammation, large gas production in the small bowel and uh, cause a lot of inflammation there. Poor bioflow and enzyme production. So I mean, you really need good bioflow to break down emulsify fat, to keep our bacterial levels under control and to really move things through the small intestine. If we don't do that, we can, we have a much greater risk of developing SIBO and gut inflammation, chronic stress and poor sleep. High cortisol loosens up those gut junctions. And so if we are under a lot of stress, stress hormones gonna cause more permeability in our gut. And you know, if we're not sleeping well, we're not recovering and healing well. So chronic stress and poor sleep don't allow us to heal properly. They're more catabolic on our system, so they break down. So it causes more of a breakdown, and that includes the gut lining, which will cause more gut inflammation. And then poor vagal tone. Vagal tone, your vagus nerve is your largest nerve. It travels from your brainstem down into your gut and into your heart, your lungs, all those areas. And it's responsible for activating the production of stomach acid, bile, pancreatic enzymes, for peristaltic or muscle contractions in the gut. So if you have poor vagal tone, then you have a slow-moving gut. You're not going to produce enough stomach acid, bile, digestive enzymes, and you're going to have problems. You're going to have a more greater tendency for microbial overgrowth, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and gut inflammation. So when we look at food sensitivities versus food allergies, we know allergies are something that you notice immediately, right? Like you eat a peanut and your lip swells up, right? You have a massive rash, right? Sometimes your, your heart palpitations. It can be life-threatening. Whereas a sensitivity could take up to 72 hours to notice. So you might eat eggs and you just might feel fatigued. You might have to clear your throat because you have an increase in acid reflux. So you have to clear your throat a lot or you have swelling in your thyroid in some cases. So you have to clear your throat a lot. You've got uh, maybe trouble swallowing, different issues like that. Possibly you have breakout with acne several hours later or maybe a day later. 
from eating certain foods. So these could all be signs of a sensitivity where your body's having an immune response, but it's subclinical. It's not um, a life-threatening response. And so the most common food allergies are things like peanuts, tree nuts, eggs, milk, and, and fish and shellfish. Whereas the most common sensitivities are wheat and gluten. That's why so many people follow a gluten-free diet because they've seen really good results because it's a common sensitivity. Milk and dairy, corn, eggs, and sugar in general uh, can all, they're all common sensitivities. Soy would be another one. So these are things to look out for. Now, again, eggs, I think are an amazing food. However, for some people, their immune system is, is hyper-inflaming when they eat it. So they have to watch out. Now, the influence of the vagus nerve, I, I mentioned how this is the longest nerve and this nerve travels again from the brainstem, it's cranial nerve 10 and travels down uh, into the heart, the lungs, digestive system. And it plays a big role in suppressing inflammation via the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathways. Um, it helps decrease heart rate, improves vascular tone, improves something called heart rate variability, or your ability to change the rhythm between beats of your heart rate, which is really an expression of adaptability. So your vagus nerves is an important player in that, um, plays an important role with the gag reflex, swallowing, coughing, uh, blood vessels, helps decrease vascular tone, lowers blood pressure, helps keep anxiety and depression at bay and helps regulate liver secretion and glucose homeostasis in the liver. And, and like I mentioned, increases gastric juices. So that's stomach acid, bile, uh, pancreatic enzyme production, helps improve gut motility. So the muscle contractions in the gut keeps the stomach acid level, you know, really strong, which is what we need to sterilize food and to digest protein effectively. So healthy vagal tone, when I use this term, which is so important when it comes to keeping your gut healthy, this, this level of vagal tone, you know, basically what that means is that the vagus nerve is able to get the messages from the brain to the organ systems of the body effectively and accurately. And that will help keep a healthy pulse rate and blood pressure. So you don't feel dizzy when you stand up, you don't have high blood pressure. Um, it keeps your blood sugar balanced, your body weight balanced helps you to have normal speech and swallowing ability, good digestion, good quality bowel movements, and a calm and peaceful mind and positive mood. So really, really key. And of course, like I said, the vagus nerve helps with activating stomach acid production. And we know stomach acid sterilizes the food, meaning that um, you know every time we eat food, there is a high level of microbes. Even if it, we just cooked it, just from the air, the microbes are gonna get on it. When we eat it, this, the acid of the stomach kills a good percentage or should kill a good percentage of those microbes. There's a lot of microbes that cannot survive harsh stomach acid. So normally at rest, our stomach acid is around three to 3.5 pH. Your normal you know, neutral water is 7.0, right? So 7.0 is neutral. So three to 3.5 is very acidic. However, not acidic enough to really break, to really sterilize and break down protein, do all the things that we need stomach acid for. So we have to actually produce a lot of energy to get the stomach acid uh, to decrease. So basically we want, it's kind of interesting how, how we communicate it because we want more acid, which actually means a lower pH. So we want to get our acid levels to 1.5 to 2.2. So like roughly around 1.5 to two in that range. And so we got to produce energy to get it 
a more harsher acidity so we can really sterilize and kill off the pathogens that are on that food to activate intrinsic factor so we can absorb B12 to stimulate the delivery of bile and enzymes. So once this bolus or once we you know, have this food that's digested from our stomach, it travels into the small intestine and the acidity of the stomach helps trigger the opening of what we call our pyloric sphincter, which is what separates the stomach from the small intestine. And as it gets, as it goes through the pyloric sphincter, it gets into the small intestine and it activates certain receptors that kind of sense the level of acidity. And we need the small intestine to be alkaline. So the acidity of the stomach will, will trigger these receptors and they say, oh, wow, no, we need an alkaline substance. Here comes bile. Bile is an alkaline substance. It's produced by the liver, stored. We have extra storage in our gallbladder. So now we pump that out through the bile ducts into the small intestine to help alkalize the small intestine. It also helps to emulsify fatty acids, very important for fatty acid metabolism, for absorbing fat-soluble nutrients like vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin E, and vitamin K. So very important for that. And it also helps out the, the alkaline substance of the bile is very um, antimicrobial as well. So it helps kill off bacteria that may thrive, that are acid loving, that can thrive in the stomach acid. So it helps kill those off. Like things like, you know, like H. pylori and different things like that will help keep them uh, under control and, um, and keeps the small intestine uh, keeps the bacterial levels and microbial levels lower in the small intestine, which is important because if we have too much bacteria, for example, in the small intestine, they're going to ferment food too quickly, which is going to cause a lot of gas, bloating, cramping, uh, digestive issues, constipation, diarrhea, and malabsorption of nutrients. So the acid kickstarting the bile is really important. And then that will also activate the pancreas to produce bicarbonate which is an alkaline substance and pancreatic enzymes. So they'll secrete those, which will help with breaking down these food particles and allowing us to really get good optimal digestion. If you're not producing enough stomach acid, you're not going to sterilize your food well. You're going to be more at risk for bacterial overgrowth, for poor protein digestion, poor mineral absorption, things like magnesium, calcium, zinc, iron from our food. We need the, the stomach acid. And then because we're at more at risk for bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine, we're more at risk for not absorbing a lot of other nutrients as well in our small intestine. So, and then we're also at a higher risk for acid reflux because food is going to sit in our stomach. It's not going to move into the small intestine as quickly, and it's going to sit in our stomach and ferment. And now it's going to pop acid. It's going to jump up into our esophagus and cause acid reflux or silent reflux and uh, cause problems there with our esophagus. So symptoms associated with low stomach acid levels, bloating, belching, hair loss in women because they're not absorbing key nutrients, heartburn, iron, B12 deficiency, gas, indigestion, diarrhea, acne, multiple food sensitivities. So if we have a lot of different food sensitivities, oftentimes because we're not producing that stomach acid, we're not getting the right digestive juice production, We've got microbial overgrowth, right? This whole kind of cascade. Constipation, weak peeling and cracked fingernails because we're not absorbing minerals effectively. 
chronic fatigue because we're not producing energy, right? We're not, we're not absorbing nutrients that we need to produce energy effectively. Um, adrenal fatigue, autoimmunity, rectal itching, dry skin, dandruff, candida, right? So all these types of things associated with low stomach acid production. Main causes of low stomach acid, chronic stress that affects our vagal tone. We talked about vagal tone, chronic stress affects that. H. pylori infection, right? So if we have an infection of H. pylori, um, you know, which is a uh, opportunistic bacteria, it's in our system, but it will overgrow if we're under chronic stress. Also, you know, one thing that's not in here is um, oral issues. So if we have um, infections in our mouth, root canals, and gingivitis and things like that, that increases our, well, it brings down our vagal tone, which decreases our stomach acid and increases our risk of having low stomach acid and uh, gut infections and gut inflammation. Aging, as we age, people tend to produce less stomach acid. So we might need to support it as we age. Zinc deficiency. So if you're not producing enough zinc, zinc is necessary for the production of stomach acid. Uh, so if we're not absorbing it well, which we need stomach acid to absorb it. So it can be a vicious cycle because we may not have enough stomach acid to absorb it. And then we don't have enough zinc to produce stomach acid. So it could be a vicious cycle. So we might need to supplement there. And then various food sensitivities cause stress on the body. And that reduces the ability to produce stomach acid. So at-home stomach acid testing. So some things that you can do at home, steak test. Uh, and I'll go through all these. Baking soda stomach acid test and the BTNHCL test. So let's see. The steak test, basically you eat a six-ounce steak all by itself. You notice how you feel over the next three months. Basically, that's all you did was just eat the steak. If you feel tired, if you have gas, abdominal bloating, acid reflux, nausea, or an increase in any other unwanted symptoms, like more inflammation, more joint pain, something like that, it's a sign you may have low stomach acid levels. So you want to address it. You may need to take stomach acid support supplements. Um, the baking soda test. So this one, you mix a quarter teaspoon of baking soda in four to six ounces of cold water first thing in the morning before eating or drinking anything, you drink that. Then you time how long it takes to burp or belch. And if it, if it goes five minutes without burping or belching, it's a sign you have low stomach acid. So the baking soda has bicarbonate that should mix with the HCL and should produce gas that you release. And so again, if you're not releasing that, then it's a sign that you may have low stomach acid. Now, the last test there, the Betine HCL test, Basically, you know, you really just take uh, a capsule of betaine HCL and you eat, you know, a meal with, let's say, you know, four to six ounces of, of steak or something like that. And you see how you feel. Did it increase your acid reflux? If it did, and you can also try this, you know, in the beginning with apple cider vinegar, apple cider vinegar, if you take that and you have a weakened gastric lining, like a stomach ulcer or a weakened gastric lining, it's actually going to irritate. You're going to feel worse. You're going to have more gut pain, gastritis. If that's the case, you need to back off. We need to focus on things that are going to help support a weakened gastric lining, which would be things like glutamine, marshmallow root, slippery elm, licorice root or DGL, deglycerinated licorice, aloe vera. Those things are great. Mastic gum, great things for the gut lining, the mucosal, mucosa, the mucosa of the stomach. Um, however, if you don't notice that, uh, let's say, let's, let's start from the beginning. Let's say you took the steak test and you didn't feel good eating the steak. So then what you could do is you could take the 
apple cider vinegar, just kind of on an empty stomach and some water, like a tablespoon in four ounces of water. And if you notice pain in your stomach, that's a sign you have a weakened gastric lining and low stomach acid. So we have to heal the, le- the weakened gastric lining first before we can address the stomach acid production, right? So we take you know, gut support supplements, glutamine, marshmallow root, um, licorice root, aloe vera. You don't need to take all of those, but like a, you know, a good recommendation for taking some of these types of things to help support the mucosal membrane. Then, you know, you can continue to repeat the apple cider vinegar test, let's say every month until you no longer have that pain. And then you take the steak and you take a capsule of betaine HCL. So a supplement that has betaine HCL in it. And you see how you feel, right? Let's say you feel good when you take one capsule of betaine HCL, then that means you addressed the stomach acid levels that you needed to be able to digest the steak. Let's say you don't feel, you still don't feel good, right? You don't have gastric pain, but you still feel fatigued and inflamed and you have gut problems when you um, eat the steak. Then you might need two capsules of the BT and HCL, right? And you can continue to tighter your dosage until you hit a spot where you feel good. Now, if at any time you notice the BT and HCL just increases your acid reflux, right? Causes a lot more pain, kind of more in your throat area, your chest, right? Not so much your stomach, right? There's a difference between kind of the stomach gastritis pain, which would be a little bit lower down, but more of like the chest type pain, heartburn, and in the throat, then that could be a sign you're taking too much betaine HCL. So it's driving up too much acid. So that's pretty much how you kind of titer your dosage. You see where you're at, how you feel um, taking this as you're consuming the meal. And you're trying to get it to where you can digest that steak and feel great. And every month you may need to titer your dosage, especially as you start to digest, you start producing more stomach acid and digesting your food better then you're not going to need to supplement quite as much because you're going to be absorbing nutrients better. You're going to be sterilizing your gut better. You're going to be, you know, uh, absorbing the amino acids and the things that you need. You're going to take less, you're going to put less stress on your gut. Therefore, you're going to be better at producing stomach acid yourself. So over time, you should be able to notice that you're reducing your dosage of BTNHCL. So hopefully that helps and that kind of addresses that. Now let's talk about bile. Bile, I mentioned, is so critical for sterilizing the gut. Bile is also very important, of course, for emulsifying fats, digesting fats, for blood sugar metabolism, and for getting rid of waste. It's so important as a detoxification vehicle. We have phase one and phase two of liver detox, which helps to deactivate and conjugate toxins. And then the conjugated toxins are put put into the bile for excretion. So we got to get the bile out in order to get rid of these things through our feces. So you can see here, uh, you know, bile sits in our gallbladder, but we also produce it in our liver. So even if you have had your gallbladder removed, you're still producing bile and it should still be flowing down through the bile duct through the liver, right? But it's just kind of a continual drip. We don't have like a storage component of it. So if you've had your gallbladder removed, you might need to eat smaller meals, right? A little bit less fat in your meals because you may have trouble emulsifying the fats. However, what you want to make sure is that your liver bile ducts are not congested or clogged, that instead they're able to flow really well. So you want to thin that bile so it can flow well, so you can really emulsify the fats, digest the food, 
right? Get rid of the waste effectively. So some ways that we can test uh, bioflow. Well, symptoms, first off, symptoms of poor bioflow. Diarrhea, bad smelling or trapped gas, stomach cramps, uh, weight loss, pale colored stool. So bile is what gives kind of the brownish color to your stool. Um, greasy or floating stools and erratic bowel movements can all be signs of poor bile flow. So best at home test for bile flow, the fat bomb test. So the fat bomb is kind of like the steak test, but instead of protein, we're focusing on pretty much just straight fat. So you're going to make a fat bomb. You can basically go to Google, type in fat bomb. You'll find a recipe. You can, you know, typically it's like chocolate and coconut. So it's just straight fat, long chain fats and some medium chain fats. And you can eat about four to 500 calories of those. And then just see how you feel for the next three hours. If you notice an increase in acid reflux, nausea, gas, bloating, diarrhea, cramping, floating stool, or any other digestive complaints during this time period, most likely have poor bile flow. So that's most likely the case. So that would be more of an indicator there. Some people will notice they'll have coconut milk, right? For example, or coconut oil, and they just, they have this massive kind of pain in their shoulder blade region or in their liver area, their gut gets real inflamed when they have some sort of long chain fat, butter or coconut oil or chocolate or something like that. It's typically a sign of poor bile flow. Um, so some other meridian points that are associated with poor bile flow, your iliotibial bands. So kind of the outer portion of your legs, particularly your right leg, which is the side that the gallbladder is on, cramping in your knees or thighs, cramping in your fourth toe, okay? Right thumb and forefinger. So the thumb and the forefinger right in between them, you can kind of rub in there. And if you're noticing a lot of tenderness in that area, it may be a sign of poor bile flow. Okay. Pain between your shoulder blades and your upper right, or I'm sorry, you're under your right shoulder blade and specifically is a referral point for that gallbladder, that, that just bile flow in general, your liver, and then certain emotions that may trigger bile flow. So liver in Chinese medicine is a seat of anger and frustration. So frustration, anger, bottled up resentment, indecisiveness can all be uh, things that can trigger poor bile flow right? Not allowing you to detoxify effectively. And then if you're noticing pain, or I'm sorry, if you're noticing like that it's hard to sleep between 11 PM and 3 AM also could be an issue going on with liver bile, right? So definitely things that, that can be done about that. You know, one other test there, the bioflow support test, we have a supplement called bioflow support and it's basically bile salts, right? So you can take things like taurine, choline, Different herbs like dandelion, for example, that really help trigger the release of bile and thinning of bile. And you can see if you feel better taking that, kind of like we talked about the stomach acid. You see if you feel better. If you feel better taking that and you can, you can challenge it with the fat bomb test, then obviously clear sign you needed to thin your bile. You needed to work on thinning your bile. So um, that's a classic sign there. Now, a lot of times low stomach acid bile flow issues can be related to hypo thyroidism or thyroid issues. So that's always a good thing to check and address. And they kind of feed onto each other because when you have poor bile flow and poor stomach acid production, you don't absorb nutrients well, you have microbial overgrowth and you're driving up inflammation, which can affect the thyroid. So a lot of times they compound on each other. So we have to figure out, you know, 
where to address, what to address first, or do we need to address both of them together? Gut dysbiosis. Gut dysbiosis is an imbalance of bacteria in your gut. This can happen when you lose beneficial bacteria, or you you have potentially harmful bacteria, or you just have less diverse bacteria in your gut. So if you're eating just you know the same eight foods, oftentimes you have a, a, a reduction in the diversity of the bacteria in your gut, and you can have an overgrowth of different types of bacteria. Some may be good or commensal bacteria, but they're overgrown. And that can cause issues and inflammation in your system as well. So we know rich and balanced bacterial communities are gonna create more regulatory T cells and better uh, gut immune function with secretory IgA. Whereas poor and unbalanced bacterial communities greatly increase your risk of autoimmunity, uh, different inflammatory disorders like allergies, metabolic disorders, and of course, gut inflammation. So when we talk about SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, we're talking about where the bacteria are overgrown. So it may not be pathogenic bacteria. It may just be that we have too much, even good bacteria that have now grown and moved up into the small intestine. You know, we should have by far the most concentrated levels of bacteria in our colon. And as we go down in the, as we get further away from like the liver, because again, remember the liver is producing that bile, right? Which is antimicrobial. So the duodenum, which is the first part of our small intestine has the least amount of bacteria. The jejunum, which is the second part, you know, has kind of gradually roughly around the same as the duodenum, maybe gradually a little bit more. And then the ileum, which is the, the terminal part of the small intestine, has a higher degree of bacteria. But what happens is, and then there's a, there's a duct, there's a, a muscle valve called the ileocecal valve, which is right between the ileum and the colon. And that should be keeping bacteria out. And if that valve, for whatever reason, is open, or if we're not moving things through effectively, and we've got bacteria just kind of sitting in the small intestine, fermenting, if we're not producing enough bile, stomach acid, right? These types of things, then we can get an overgrowth or a translocation of, you know, in the case of the valve, we would have a translocation where the, the bacteria can move because the valve is open up into the small intestine. And in the case of like just poor bile, poor um, acid production, we can just have too much bacteria coming in, not being sterilized. And so now they start to get into that, that, uh, that ileum and start to really ferment and they and and overgrow and colonize and overgrow and that can cause a lot of gas bloating right a lot of different problems a lot of inflammation i just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know that this episode of the functional nutrition podcast is sponsored by our friends at paleo valley they make the most powerful pure vitamin c supplement you can get because unlike most vitamin C supplements containing synthetic ingredients that are created in the lab, Paleo Valley Essential C Complex is made from three of the most potent whole food sources of vitamin C on the planet. Nothing weird, just food. Check them out at paleovalley.com and use the coupon code JOCKERS, J-O-C-K-E-R-S, to get 15% off today. And so, and then of course we can get other microbes, yeast, parasites, different issues like that. So, you know, we talked a lot about these symptoms, brain symptoms, depression, headaches, chronic pain, poor memory, all can be signs. 
um, you know, fatigue and weakness, iron deficiency, anemia, abdominal pain, skin problems, right? All signs there could be some sort of microbial overgrowth. Now let's talk about pancreatic enzyme production. We talked about, you know, bicarbonate coming from our pancreas. This really works with the bile. So when we notice that there's a lot of acid, an acidic bolus, pre-digested food that's very acidic moving into the small intestine, triggers the release of the bile. Well, it also triggers the pancreas to release digestive enzymes and bicarbonate to help alkalize the small intestine and to help further break down, digest the food. So symptoms that you're not producing pancreatic enzymes effectively are gas and bloating. I know this is kind of across the board, but um, gas and bloating, again, goes, goes well, goes hand in hand with poor pancreatic enzyme production, diarrhea, constipation, abdominal cramping, poor tolerance. Now, this is, this is the key here. This is what kind of differentiates it from the bile and the, and the stomach acid. Poor tolerance to high fiber foods and high FODMAP foods. So high fiber foods, what is that going to be? That's going to be things like, you know, your broccoli, your cauliflower, your, you know, all your cruciferous vegetables. These are high FODMAP foods. Um, maybe grains could be, you know, high fiber foods. Um, let's see, you know, your, uh, all your green leafy vegetables, right, are, are higher fiber foods. So your different types of fruits and vegetables and starches, and, and things like that, that really don't have much fiber and protein, I'm sorry, don't have much fat and protein, but do have a lot of fiber and certain types of carbohydrates we call FODMAPs. If you're not digesting them well, you most likely have poor pancreatic enzyme production. And also you may have bacterial overgrowth in that small intestine. So at-home tests, the broccoli test is a very simple, easy test that you can do you prepare and you eat a big bowl of steamed broccoli. We steam it to break down the outer cellulose, make it a little easier for your body to break down. So it should be fairly easy for you to digest. Then you watch your symptoms and you see how you feel over the next three hours. If you have an increase in bloating, gas, acid reflux, or any other unwanted symptoms, like an increase in pain, for example, or brain fog, it may indicate that you have small intestinal or could be large intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So there's just a level of overgrowth in, in your system and you may also have poor pancreatic enzyme production. So one thing that really helps here is digestive enzymes. And that would be the next step. You can repeat the broccoli test, but take some digestive enzymes and try to figure out a good dosage that really helps, helps you support that. And that can really help. So you, know, you really wanna optimize those digestive juices, allow them to really flow effectively so you can absorb, digest, break down, absorb, your nutrients effectively and keep the microbes in the right balance. Now, certain medications that can cause gut inflammation, NSAIDs, we talked about that, aspirin, ibuprofen, things like that, um, PPIs, so uh, acid blocking medications, they're going to reduce and block your stomach acid production, which makes you feel better if you have acid reflux, but you're furthering the problem. You're actually reducing your protein, mineral, and B12 absorption and increasing the overgrowth of bad microbes in the gut. So in some cases, taking some PPIs or some acid blocking meds for a very short period of time, if you have extreme acid reflux or if you have an ulcer can be helpful, but you wanna get off that medication as soon as possible. In fact, taking acid blocking medications over a long period of time is associated with higher all-cause mortality, meaning you die, right? It, you increase your risk of death. And that's because you're not absorbing these key nutrients and you're increasing the amount of 
bad microbes in your system. So it's only going to cause more problems. So it should only be short-term relief at best. Same thing with antibiotics. Obviously, antibiotics kill bacteria. They cause disruption in our gut microbiome. So only should be used for shortest amount of time. Birth control. Birth control increases estrogen levels, which disrupts liver function and microbiome diversity, can increase gut inflammation, and then steroids. Taking steroids long-term suppresses immune function, which leads to an overgrowth of pathogenic microbes in the gut and increased gut inflammation. So the five R's to healing gut inflammation and leaky gut syndrome. Number one, we want to remove inflammatory foods, obviously different infections, gut infections, parasites, yeast, bad bacteria, right? Getting rid of medications that you might be taking and other gut stressors, right? That you may be exposed to. Um, like for example, glyphosate or, you know, trying to go organic so we don't get herbicides and pesticides, which can stress the gut. Mold exposure, right? That, you know, uh, breathing in mold can stress the gut. So these are other gut stressors. Then you want to replace, you want to eat a gut healing diet. You want to support digestive enzymes, stomach acid and bioflow. You want to re-inoculate. You add in probiotics, possibly prebiotic foods to tolerance in order to reseed the gut microbiome. You're going to work on repairing the gut using key nutrients such as glutamine, aloe vera, licorice root, and to heal the gut lining. And then you want to rebalance. You want to manage stress, get regular exercise, sun exposure, prioritizing good sleep, and eating a nutrient-dense anti-inflammatory diet. So these are the five R's to healing the gut. Now, some gut-friendly nutrition strategies, particularly if you're noticing a lot of gut inflammation, you know, there's kind of a higher, there's kind of a, a step-by-step approach. You begin with an elimination diet. So the first step is an elimination diet. You might just eliminate certain foods that are the most common culprits. And this could be gluten, uh, grains in general, oftentimes, dairy, right? So taking things like that out, sugar, corn, um, processed foods, right? So we're taking those things out and we're seeing how we respond, right? Give it a two weeks or so and see how you respond. For some people, they respond great just by doing that, okay? However, for other people, they need a lot more help, okay? But when you're eating inflammatory foods or foods that are driving up inflammation, that's going to decrease stomach acid. It's gonna delay the movement of food through the digestive tract, cause poor nutrient absorption and damage your gut cells and cause inflammation. So just by removing those foods gives your body a break and can allow you to heal. Now, the next step is you know, possibly trying a high prebiotic diet, right? So for some people, they do great with these prebiotic foods. Other people need to take as much of these prebiotic foods out as possible. So prebiotics are types of fibers that can feed good bacteria in our gut and they help them grow strong. And they're foods that we cannot necessarily digest, but our gut microbiome and our intestines metabolize and create something called postbiotic nutrients, short chain fatty acids that improve our health. So some, some foods that are known for their prebiotic fibers are things like onions, garlic, avocados, dandelion greens, artichokes, asparagus, um, apples, leeks, right? These things are known for having a lot of these key uh, nutrients and key phytochemicals in there as well. Things like quercetin and polyphenols um, and stuff like that, that really support our body. So you can try increasing the amount and see if you feel better or worse. If you feel worse, then it may be a sign that you are struggling with, again, producing enough pancreatic enzymes. You might have too much bacterial overgrowth. 
So you might want to go on a low FODMAP diet. A low FODMAP diet removes these certain types of fermentable um, carbohydrates. So excess fructose, which you know we can find in a lot of fruit and things like artichokes, asparagus, uh, peas, some uh, you know things like that. Lactose it removes you know the dairy carbohydrates from dairy. It removes high fructans. And galactans, which we find in certain vegetables like artichokes, garlic, leek, you know, these things that are renowned for their prebiotic uh, ability may be causing an overgrowth of bad microbes too. They may be providing too much fuel. So we got to take these things out. Onions, uh, you know, garlic, peas, beans, right, are, are high in these things. So we take those out. And then the polyols, which include things like cauliflower, different types of fruits, apples, apricots, blackberries, cherries, you can see um, all those types of foods in there and sugar alcohols. So we remove those and we, you know, we're also taking out certain nuts, pistachios, cashews, different things like that. Again, beans, we talked about legumes. And then you follow that for two to six weeks. Okay. So you eat lower FODMAP foods. So some vegetables that are lower FODMAP are going to be things like carrots, zucchini, um, hearts of palm, those are lower FODMAP, cucumbers, and then, you know, some berries like blueberries, for example, are lower FODMAP. So you're eating those instead. And then um, over two to six weeks, and then, you know, you start to add back FODMAPs, one FODMAP at a time, one food at a time over like a three-day period. And then you're increasing your serving size each day and you're monitoring your tolerance. So you want to do really an intentional reintroduction. So it might just be, you know, broccoli, for example, you know, one week. Um, and you're doing that like over a three-day period and just kind of seeing how you, what you notice. And you want to find your FODMAP tolerance, right? That's really the key. And over time, you'll understand, okay, this is the amount of FODMAP rich foods that you can consume that you feel good with. And, um, you know, that really helps you set up your diet the way that you need to. Now, in some cases, we need to do some different, really different diets, a semi-elemental diet or an elemental diet. So these are more liquid-based diets. So sometimes there's so much gut inflammation that we need to remove the solid foods. And this can be a great strategy. In fact, it's something I, I just enjoy practicing on a regular basis is having like a big protein smoothie with healthy fats in it where the blender has already broken down a lot of these things and made them easier to digest. Now, a semi-elemental diet is where you eat, you have some liquid and some solid food, whereas a truly elemental diet is just straight liquid diet, right? And you're typically following it for a short period of time, like 14 to 21 days, to really help reduce the amount of overgrowth of bacteria that's in your system. And then you can start back on a low FODMAP diet, right? After going through that for a period of time. So typically what I do is I will start with, you know, the low FODMAP diet and see how somebody responds with that. And we may do like a semi-elemental low FODMAP diet where we do like one, we replace one of their meals with a smoothie, um, some sort of liquid nutrition, low FODMAP liquid nutrition, and um, see how their body responds with that. And if they do well with it, great, right? And we're trying to really get some good gut healing. If we're not, still not doing well, we may do just an elemental diet where we just do liquid nutrition. And then you can go even more extreme where there's a specific elemental 
diet shake. So it's a specific type of shake that has really taken out all the fiber, right? And, um, and made it as easy as possible for people that have severe digestive issues. So those are different options. And also even with the low FODMAP, we can even do like a carnivore diet where we're just eating animal products, or even in some cases, just beef and salt, right? Beef and salt and drinking water. And I've seen people do really, really well with that actually, believe it or not. And we're, again, we're not doing this long-term. We might do this for two to, two to four weeks, right? Um, and then slowly start reintroducing other foods to try to create more diversity in the gut after we get the inflammation down and under control. So these are the kind of ways that we're manipulating the diet to get the results. Now to improve stomach acid levels. So if you notice that your stomach acid wasn't, wasn't working very well, you did the steak test, right? You're not digesting protein. Well, here's some things you can do using liquid nutrition. So again, a semi-elemental diet can be helpful because what that does is it takes stress off the gut right? Provides nutrients, provides hydration, and it reduces stress. And when we reduce stress on the gut, that's going to help the stomach be able to produce more stomach acid when it needs to. We can use ginger. We can actually just chew on ginger root or drink ginger tea, and that will help activate the vagus nerve, which will help activate the production of stomach acid, as well as bile and pancreatic enzymes. Same thing with lemon and apple cider vinegar. We can use lemon, lime, apple cider vinegar, which those kind of tart, types of, um, of liquids or foods, these herbs really help stimulate vagus nerve production, right? So it help improve vagus vagal tone, which increases or improves the production of stomach acid bile and pancreatic enzymes. Fermented veggies can be helpful. Fermented drinks. You have to see where you're at. If you need a low FODMAP diet, then you would avoid fermented veggies because you don't want add, to add in, you know, more fermentable foods into your system. So you got to be careful there. Um, we don't want to drink a lot with meals. Why do we not want to drink a lot with meals? Because it will dilute our stomach acid. Remember, water is usually about 7.0 pH. We want the contents in our stomach to roughly be between 1.5 and 2.2. So if we're drinking a lot of water with the meal, we're going to dilute that. So it's better to hold off on water until after a meal, roughly 20 or 30 minutes after a meal, then you can start drinking. Eat your largest meal when you're most relaxed. When we're in a relaxed state, we're going to stimulate more stomach acid production, more bile, more pancreatic enzymes. We're going to have better vagal tone when we're relaxed, when we're grateful. Take a few deep breaths. Say a prayer before your meal. Uh, be in a state of gratitude. That will help you produce the stomach acid that you need. And then you know, lastly here, eat protein foods at the beginning of the meal. And I know this sounds counterintuitive, but actually it will sit, drop right into the bottom of the stomach. That is where the most concentrated region of stomach acid is to help metabolize it. So that will help. And one more thing that's not on this chart here is actually just consuming salt, right? So actually, you know, eating foods that are trace mineral rich, like healthy, you know, grass-fed organic meats and wild-caught seafood and stuff like that, um, you know, eat, and using some good sea salt because you need sea salt to produce stomach acid. So that will help as well. Now, natural techniques for stimulating the vagus nerve. So we talked about if you have a low vagal tone, well, deep breathing for sure is great. Being in a state of gratitude, like we talked about, very good. There are some other things too. Believe it or not, activating the palate, right? The, 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 the palate will help. So humming, singing, chanting, these things all really help. And they actually have been shown to increase heart rate variability, which is a sign of better vagal tone. Laughing. Laughing is a natural immune booster. 
And like singing, it increases your heart rate variability and increases vagal, vagal nerve tone. Exercise, the right type of exercise, along with good sleep, um, you know, not overtraining, but that will help stimulate your vagus nerve. Gargling, so you could just take some water, put it in the back of your throat and gargle it. And the action there of activating the palate will stimulate your vagus nerve, right? So that can be helpful. Um, also cold exposure. So taking a cold shower, drinking ice water, um, something along those lines can actually increase vagal tone, believe it or not, or just splashing some water, cold water on your face will increase some, your vagal tone. So that can be helpful. Um, thoughtful meditation and actually warm, warm as well. So you can drink some like warm herbal tea, warm lemon water, right? Something like that. In fact, I recommend that in the morning when you get up drinking some warm herbal tea or warm lemon water or something like that, or coffee that will actually activate your vagus nerve and help stimulate peristalsis and help you move things through your bowels more effectively. So that can be helpful. Uh, meditation, yoga, prayer, um, gratitude practices can all be very helpful for vagal tone. Now, bowel movements, you should be moving your bowels one to four times daily, right? And ideally earlier in the day. So between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m., your large intestine is most active. You want to be moving your bowels during that period of time, but at least once or twice during that period of time. And oftentimes you'll notice you need to go after meals, like after lunch or something like that. You want to move out all the ways from previous meals within 24 hours. If you don't, it's going to sit in your gut. It's going to rot, putrefy, create a lot of toxic debris and drive up inflammation. So best daily rhythm is early in the morning and shortly after meals. And healthy bowel movements are so important for reducing the overall microbial load in your body. They eliminate destructive endotoxins, so they get rid of toxins, reduce inflammation throughout your body. They help calm your, your brain and your nervous system. You will notice that, right? Because they're getting rid of these reactive agents and endotoxins. It's going to enhance your energy, your mental clarity. It's going to improve your skin health, your natural glow, and reduce chronic pain levels. Now, for some people, um, that have gut inflammation and they're not moving their bowels well, you may need to do an ileocecal valve massage. And this is pretty simple. Basically, it's your ileocecal valve is right in between your belly button and your right hip, right? So kind of right in there, it's like a 45 degree angle. Right in the middle there is where your ileocecal valve is. And so you basically just kind of take your hand in there, you make like a little fist and you can kind of just press slowly, deeply and firmly you know, search to see if there's any little tender hardened areas in that area. And if you find it, begin to massage in a circular motion with about medium pressure for about 10 to 15 seconds. You can do this standing up or on your back, right? Laying down. So you just kind of get in there and you're moving that region, right? And you kind of want to go left to right, right? To kind of just try to gently push contents that may be sitting there, not able to move through that valve. So you're kind of moving left to right and also going in a circular motion through that region. So pretty simple, easy thing to do. A lot of people have seen really good changes by doing that. Now, some things, some other additional things you can do. Probiotics are a great first line. A lot of people respond really well to probiotics, not everybody. Some people do not respond well to probiotics or they just don't move the needle for them. But in general, the research says that probiotics are great immune modulators, great for protecting against infections, improving nutrient absorption. Um, they help produce postbiotics like butyrate, which is a short chain fatty acid that reduces inflammation in the gut and really throughout the whole body. 
they improve brain health, they aid in weight loss. So a lot of great factors there. Now we have four main categories of probiotics. We have food-based probiotics. That's so going to be like your lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. The most well-studied. Those ones are the most well-studied. Great benefits there. We have probiotic yeast like Saccharomyces boulardii, which again is, is fairly well-studied and, and uh, we're seeing very good results with it. And then you have soil-based probiotics. This is kind of your bacillus strains. You may have heard of soil-based probiotics or spore-forming probiotics where they form endospores that protect them from harsh environments like stomach acid. So they also are very, very good um, you know, for the body. And so for some people, they respond. And then we have combination probiotics that kind of use a combination of these different types. So what I found is that most people respond really well to combination probiotics, like getting all of those in there. However, there are some people that just do not do well with food-based probiotics, for example, or they do really poorly with Saccharomyces boulardii, or they do really poorly with soil-based probiotics. So for very sensitive cases, we might try each one of these categories, right? And just try it for a week and see if you feel better or worse or the same, right? And that will kind of let you know, okay, it really didn't move the needle for me, or it did move the needle, or I actually felt worse. If you felt worse, obviously, we want to avoid that particular species, um, or, or multiple species, if it, that was in there, if you felt better, that may be a species, a go-to species, may stay on that one, um, at least for a period of time. And, um, you know, if it didn't move the needle, you might want to try a different, a different one of the probiotics or combination probiotic to see if that moves the needle or try a higher dose to see if it moves the needle. So you want to experiment here, especially if you're somebody that's dealt with a lot of gut inflammation for years. You want to experiment to get the right dosage. It might take you a few months, you know, two or three months to kind of play around with these to figure out which ones are really moving the needle for you, but it can make a big difference in your overall health. So it's a good thing to, to look at. And then there are a whole bunch of other agents that help reduce inflammation in the gut, help support the production of um, healthy gut mucosa, help, help to heal the intestinal lining. And these are great nutrients that can support you. Aloe vera, L-glutamine. Ginger, elagic acid, quercetin, licorice root, um, resveratrol, marshmallow root, turmeric, or its active ingredient, curcumin, slippery elm, right? You can get slippery elm tea, for example. Zinc, selenium, these are key minerals that help with uh, gut healing, right? We talked about zinc for, for, for uh, stomach acid support as well. Bioflavonoids, vitamin C. Okay. And sometimes you can find combinations of vitamin C and bioflavonoids, which really synergize to reduce inflammation. Um, we mentioned probiotics, N-acetylcysteine or your glutathione boosting agents. Cysteine is um, your, your main precursor to helping support glutathione. N-acetylcysteine or NAC is also a, a biofilm disruptor, which helps break down biofilms from bad microbes that, you know, these protein outer shells. You can also use proteolytic enzymes which break down these biofilms, these protein shells or protein um, layers that uh, pathogens produce to protect them. And that helps your body get rid of these bad microbes so they can't survive. MSM, right? That's a, another great natural uh, gut and liver soothing agent that helps reduce inflammation in those areas. Butyrate. This is you know, relatively new type of supplement, but you can actually take 
short chain fatty acids, which is what your what good bacteria produce that reduce inflammation in your body. But if you're having trouble producing that, if you have a lot of food sensitivities, you're on a low FODMAP diet, you may need to take some butyrate to help get over the edge, over the hump, right? And get that inflammation under control. Also immunoglobulins, right? So we naturally produce our own immunoglobulins. We produce IgA, but you may not be producing enough because your, your gut is so inflamed and damaged. So you can take bovine serum immunoglobulins, BSE or BSI. You can take colostrum, right? Which is kind of dairy-based immunoglobulins. You can take hyperimmunized egg immunoglobulins, which typically even people with egg, allerg egg sensitivities typically do well with. So you can take different immunoglobulins um, in order to help bind and grab pathogens and other toxins in your gut and move those out. And then omega-3 fatty acids are great for just reducing inflammation throughout the body. What I just talked about was a lot of things, right? We talked about probiotics, we talked about all these different nutrients. But if you're looking for like one, you know, really go-to type of, uh, of gut healing supplement or support, we do have our gut healing protein powder, which is really like a phase one through three liver detox system. So there's nutrients, specific amino acids and nutrients in there that help activate phase one and phase two liver detox helps stimulate bioflow and help move uh, and reduce inflammation in your gut and move things through your bowels so you can get these toxins out of your system. Again, we see just so many people, um, you know, that just are, are overloaded with toxins and their liver is sluggish, bioflow is sluggish, and their gut is inflamed. And so this is uh, a product that can really help with supporting that um, and so that's why it's, you know, it's a really great go-to the gut healing protein. However, you know, depending on your particular case, you may need a really customized plan. And that's why it's always advisable to work with a great healthcare practitioner that can look at your unique history, that can look at your labs and customize a specific plan with specific supplements for you. So hopefully this has been a helpful training for you guys, and we will see you guys on future online training. Be blessed. Well, that's all for this show. And I wanna thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on, or you wanna dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.